Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Intercall Podcast. This is Flair. Thank you for listening. For the fact that I get to do this and get to put my voice out into the world, I thank you. But also, thank yourself, because I really believe that when we listen to stories of people who follow their inner call, who do things a little differently, who walk to the beat of their own drum, whatever that drum might be, it's an inspiration for you, and it starts to sink into your subconscious. It's like your own belief systems around what's possible, what you should be doing, they shift. It's a huge part as to why I have this podcast to help you redefine your belief systems around what is possible when it comes to the intuitive voice, when it comes to the intuition. So thank you for being here. Thank yourself for being here, especially on this part two episode with Elise Lunin, because she has been the topic of conversation in my own life now for the last couple of weeks since I had the conversation with her here on the podcast. We, if you didn't catch part one, we talk about what it is to have a patriarchal system and how the feminine gets lost within a patriarchal system, how the feminine gets constricted, and how we are now moving into a new era, right? It's not about being a matriarchy, but it's about finding the fusion. And we talk a little bit about how men haven't really had to do that yet. Like women have carried the torch. We've had to be and embody the masculine and the feminine, but also we've been confined. And Elise in her new book, which which went to the New York Times bestsellers list, really looks at these seven deadly sins and looks at how it's been used to keep women small, how we have been afraid to feel our own emotions. The book is called On Our Best Behavior, and she chronicles the seven deadly sins. You probably have heard of them if you've been on the planet. They are envy, anger, greed, sloth, you know, all of the things that we have kind of demonized in society. And she really looks at it from the lens of being weaponized against women largely to say, you shouldn't be these things and you shouldn't even want to feel the emotion, which from that lens is absolutely fascinating, right? We know that that seven deadly sin concoction wasn't found in a historical text. Like we talk about this with Elise in part one. It wasn't in the Bible, for example. It was adopted sociologically to say, hey, we can weaponize these emotions. Like we can keep people small by saying this emotion is bad. And of course, in the last decade of research, last two decades of research, we know Above all, you have to feel your feelings. You cannot choose to not feel one and effectively feel the good ones only. It's not possible. We end up suppressing, we end up repressing, we end up becoming depressed at the end of the day. And so it's such a fascinating conversation that I've had with people in my own life. I actually went to the beach with a couple of friends yesterday and we talked about this topic really at length because... There was one of us in the group who's very Catholic, and there's one of us in the group who's very spiritual, and I am also obviously spiritual. I do have a podcast called The Inner Call, after all, so I wouldn't necessarily say that I come from a very strict religious background, but we were discussing this as to like what is the difference between, let's say, the Ten Commandments, which are all about action, right? Like, don't murder that person. 
yes, that's a very actionable moral compass as to what one shouldn't do. But don't feel envy. Don't feel anger. Like somehow we're saying no to that emotion. And then especially in the representation of the feminine. And we know that the feminine is where intuition lives. And we know that emotion speaks to the intuition that one of the calling cards of the intuition is emotion. So then, whoa, like where does that leave us? We've been told for decades, years and years and years, do not feel these emotions. These are bad emotions. You shouldn't feel anger. You shouldn't feel greed. And so today's episode, part two, really dives into the next part of our conversation where we get pretty vulnerable, Elise and I, around some of the feelings that we've had that maybe in the past we would have shied away from, we wouldn't want to feel because we thought they were bad to feel, right? We didn't want to be breaking the code of what one should be doing, but then also realizing that underneath those big feelings, big emotions, lies so much juicy information about desire, about drive, about what your own spirit wants to do in the world, that the emotion gives us an indication as to what we want. And that if we shy away from that, then we're really doing ourselves a disservice. So it's a fairly vulnerable episode, I think, but I love it. And it's given me so much juicy content to talk about with friends that I have truly, truly enjoyed. So I'm curious if if it does the same for you. Leave a note, you know, write us a review. Let me know what you think. I I have loved this topic and I think it has layer upon layer upon layer to discern and to dissect for the self, to say, where am I policing myself? And in doing so, where am I policing my deepest intuitive knowledge? Where am I keeping myself small? Oof, big question to answer as you listen in on today's episode. Enjoy it. And the reality is just from having a couple years lead time on this process and like using the sins as a framework for diagnosing what's happening in my own body, it's, Mm. I'm not saying it's easy and I'm not saying it hasn't been like a deeply therapeutic process and that I'm still, I'm not going to say I'm done and that I am like balanced and uh, I don't shame myself, you know, of course not. But two things. One, I feel much more, um, it's shocking to me how quickly these feelings can be resolved once properly diagnosed, that they're not, they don't linger with the same vehemence. And that Two, what's exciting to me and where I think that there's great potential is that more, as more women have read the book and as I've been able to get into conversation with them, these things start transforming really fast. It's like a muscle. It's like a retraining muscle. And the more we can support each other and both interrupting or sort of calling each other, being like, well, wait, wait, like what's happening? And like, I can sense your, I can sense your upset. Like I can feel it. What, what's happening? The more we can support each other in this excavation and like repathing almost, 
the faster it starts to happen. And the more we disrupt this, the more I think the more quickly a lot of these structures change, you know, because you can look yeah. at the world and say like, why haven't we yeah. made more progress? And I don't want to blame – I'm not blaming victims here, but I think that the part of the – one of the impediments is one, our women's inability to get on side with other women. And I would love to see this help us take a step in that direction. But two, like, you know, thinking about these sins as distinct, which is how I had read about them, like Rebecca Traster on anger or, you know, Aubrey Gordon on on fatness and gluttony and sort of our horribly body shaming culture. You can find sort of disparate experiences of these, but you can't change, we can't change the culture. I, I believe a lot of these systems and structures don't really have teeth and will like evolve and change quite rapidly, but we can't change it until we resolve our own ambivalence. So like I could say this pay gap is brutal and the wealth gap is even more brutal for women, but if I myself am completely ambivalent and conflicted about my feelings about money and wanting more of it. And that makes me feel bad and on and on and on. If I am not negotiating for myself, if I sort of have cast aspersions on other women who ask for more, all of this sort of like private, private psychological hell, then I'm not changing that system. I'm enforcing it. Same with anger. If I don't deal with my own anger, I'm not going to be angry in public yeah. in the way that we need women to. It's it's fascinating how life happens in this way, right? I had a day and a half ago, everything you've just talked about, I'm like, check, 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 check. <laughs> I was at dinner. Yeah. It's like so fascinating where I'm like, oh man, I just lived this. <laughs> I just lived this. I was at dinner two days ago with with two very dear friends of mine and they are both men and super successful, like super successful and kind of working their way into the spiritual community and making incredible things happen. But they have a ton of finances to back them because they have been very successful selling companies and da da da. And I had this moment of feeling very like other than at this dinner, I was like, I don't belong in this group. Like they are like building empires over here. And I'm just, mm, and then I was like sitting with it. And then all of a sudden I had this moment where I was like, oh my God, I am envious. Like I had this like this moment where I was like, I'm really jealous of these two. And then just the witnessing of that emotion, just taking a moment to recognize like, this is what I'm feeling right now. And my previous self would have just totally shut down and been like, well, I don't belong in this group and made all sorts of stories around how like finances don't matter. And like they're putting their eggs in the wrong baskets and da 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 and like going off on a whole thing. And instead I just kind of really... One, I was very proud of myself because I was like, I've been doing some work. Just recognize it as envy and then have been sitting over the last two days about like, well, what belief systems do I hold around money that it's a patriarchal thing, like that the men can make it at the table, that they can do spiritual things and make money and that I somehow can't. And so everything you're saying is, I feel like it's a yes. And I also want to address it from the perspective of like, it is so internalized within us and it is such a... Like I was like, I didn't know I had all those feelings. It was it was bizarre to witness it within myself and and try not to shy away from it or get really ashamed or think like, oh, I'm doing it wrong. Um, yeah, all of yes. that. Yes, it is so deeply 
so deeply in us. I cannot stress this enough. I did not grow up in a religious household. My dad is a is Jewish, but not practicing. My mom is a recovering Catholic who is scarred by religion and tried to keep me as far away from it as possible. I am have become a very spiritual person sort of in my late 30s and 40s, but that is not the water that I was that's not the faucet that I was drinking from. I grew up in Montana in the woods pretty far away from sort of prevailing predominant culture and I didn't have cable, you know. My parents are really progressive and and not patriarchal. I went to a grade school without grades at this hippie alternative school, no textbooks, no grades, etc. Like I couldn't have been in some ways, and maybe that's why I felt I had the comfort to write this yeah. book, but this is not something that we sign up for. It's not something that we subscribe to. It's not like, uh, oh, I like that. I choose that. This is culture that is the air we breathe. We pass it on to each other. And and part of it's part of why it becomes so difficult. These things that are so obvious, like the seven deadly sins, so obvious, right? But they become invisible to us. Yeah. Because we take them as ourselves. Mm-hmm. We assume, like, oh, this is me. Yeah. This is me. And then it's like, oh, no, no, this is my parents putting this on me. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, oh, actually, no, this is much bigger, yeah. much bigger. And if you keep holding the shame, it becomes impossible to look at and it becomes impossible to change. Yeah. And yeah. that's like such a catch-22, I think, that we've then found ourselves in is, well, I can't look at it because that makes me a bad person. I'm trying to be this good person. And then even if I look at it, again, that makes me a bad person. So like it's a very stuck space. Yes, it's a terrible, it's a terrible form of consciousness. And the reality is, and this goes back to sort of Jesus, Yeshua, like who I've come to love and understand is completely distinct from Christianity in many ways, and Mary Magdalene. But this comes back to this idea of like, you are good. You are inherently mm-hmm. good and you are human. And that is the point. You are a, a place where spirit and matter connect in a very magical way. And your job is to experience the world fully. And that means for women, you have to let your appetites, your impulses, your desires, like that is the point. And we all need to be bringing our gifts to bear. This is not the point. Living as sort of repressed, half-masked, sort of like, and and this is the other thing I want to say. I think a lot of women I do this, and we see this in sort of you you would hear this it still happens, this admonishment, like be more confident, say your worth, go out there, you know, da, 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 da. and then you hear women sort of leading with their competence over their confidence, which I understand, and this idea, again, a myth that women lack confidence, and if we were more mm-hmm. confident in the world, things would be different. Well, the reality is we recognize that we are punished for our confidence. It is not a likable quality. All the social science supports this. We are judged for it by men and women. It's applauded in men, deprecated in women. So we condition our own behavior in order to abide. 
But I think that the reality is women know. And to get to your sort of, we know, we know we're amazing. We know we're incredibly competent. We know we're incredibly intelligent. In fact, in all measures, women, we've been outperforming men at school for a century. We are more philanthropic, more generous. We're more physically durable. We certainly work really, really hard. So there's also this, like, if we could just, we're boxers who've been training at high altitude. If we could get behind ourselves and get behind each other, yeah, watch out. And not in a scary way for men. This is the thing. I do think women are good, ironically, like full of goodness. Not perfection, but I think if we could really allow what's in us to come from us, we'll start to shift and evolve culture fast. And if men can let the feminine come up to men are being, I think, I think women have learned for millennia and other marginalized people how to exist and survive, right? We understand the system intimately. And if we start doing the work, we understand now how it acts on us. So we are like prize fighters in terms of how to function in the system. I think men, ironically, have no idea how wounded they are by patriarchy, how devastating this has been for men. And I included a chapter on sadness, Mm. even though it's not on the list, because I believe that fear of sadness is lodged in the minds of men, that we have severed boys and men, we're better now, but that we sever them from their feelings. And the primary symptom of that is toxic masculinity. And when you look at rates of depression, there's this therapist, Terry Real, who writes about this so beautifully and like works a lot with men. He wrote this book. It's, it's old, but it's amazing, called I Don't Want to Talk About It. And he looked at rates of overt depression in women, which are higher than overt depression in men. But when you add up personality disorders, addiction, et cetera, they equalize. You look at what's happening culturally. You look at mass shootings. You look at all of the dysfunction. It is essentially all at the hands of men. These wounded boys become wounding men. You think about rates of suicide, deaths of despair. Yeah. Men are in a crisis, crisis. And again, I get it. It's like this book is for women and it's about women. But we are in much better shape, ironically. Yeah, of course, because we've been we've been fighting it, so to speak, within ourselves and externally for ever. Yeah. You talk a little bit about like the mystical journey of this book and going through it yourself. When you were going through the dead the seven deadly sins, was there one that really stood out for you as like a surprise as you didn't realize that had been going on in your life in the same way that you saw the envy in your friend? Yeah. I mean, so if you know the Enneagram, you know that they're actually, if you go deep into the work, they're each associated and there are nine. Yeah. They're each associated with a, you're a three. I'm a three. I'm a one. And that they're associated. I'm trying to think of what the threes sort of vice is. They're used very differently in the Enneagram than they are as sins. So the one is anger. 
Oh, and it's sort of this animating impulse, this like, like eights are lustful, not necessarily like for sex, but they just like, they're, they're forces in the world. They want things. And so part of it is like bringing that instinct into balance. Mm. And it's, this won't surprise anyone. Cause I think that what also happens with women is what's most alive in you is what you're mo- most inclined to repress. But like anger for me and throughout the book, I, I brought – it's part memoir because I didn't know how it would be, how it would shake out. I am incredibly comfortable, Fleur, in your seat, interviewing people, researching, reading deeply, synthesizing information, looking for trends, diagnosing culture, being clinical and abstract. I love, love that. I love that zone. And as I was doing the book, I had a little bit of memoir and storytelling, my own relationship to each sin. And my editor had to sort of like grab me by the nose and like bring me to each one in in a much deeper way. Mm. And again, it sort of goes to this like it's easy to diagnose like the pay gap. It's another thing to address your own feelings around scarcity, money, its baseness, whatever, whatever that programming is. And so anger – that chapter, which I think might be my favorite, it's the last chapter before sadness. Anger is often a secondary emotion to fear, shame, and sadness. It's like a protective shield at times to keep us from a deeper feeling. So I think that's why you see so much of this anger eruption in men. But anyway, as someone, Enneagram type one, I didn't really realize this until I started working on the book. I have been so good throughout my life at higher minding all of my anger and rationalizing it and putting a smile on it and suppressing it. And so for me, getting close to my anger, recognizing it as an essential Mm -hmm. animating emotion that is that don't tread on me don't step on me. These are my boundaries. These are my needs to let myself have those needs and to require that those needs are respected, even if they're not met. Was that chapter was the most powerful piece of personal work for me. And a very important part of that, I write a lot about Marshall Rosenberg and nonviolent communication, but is like figuring out the appropriate channel for our anger, which is not at other people and it's not at ourselves. So it is this like, I am angry because I am needing fill in the blank. Not like I'm angry at you because you didn't do the dishes. It is, I am angry because I need a clean house to feel functional, to feel relaxed, and I need support. I need other people to help me do that. You know, whatever it is, is, but it's like- What you just said was like so impactful for me just now where you said it's not directed at others and not directed at yourself. Yeah. That's not the healthy way. Because I think often when we think about anger, it's like, oh yeah, you want to express that in the right way, the healthy way, da, da, da. And we look at it from the perspective of, well, don't put it on others. But I think we never really talk about, well, don't put it on yourself either. It's equally unhealthy. Equally unhealthy. And I think for women shows up, you know, in really, really unhealthy ways. Like, yes, you know, it's an attack on self. It's not 
and it has to come up. It has to come up. It doesn't have to be unprocessed. It shouldn't be unprocessed. It shouldn't just be, you know, thrown at people again. But there is a lot of vital information and it is a very powerful energy when harnessed and used well. And it's also insistent. It's not, it does not go quietly into the night. And a lot of what me, what I needed in my excavation of anger is to recognize the spectrum, which from it's like impatience, irritation, frustration. Um, I write about this from like the Bond Tibetan perspective, irritation, tantrum, anger, rage. And I think for a lot, for me at least, it's that like impatience, frustration, resentment level is just so, such a slow boil in me. Mm. And then to actually say, okay, like not, okay, let's bring this up to a crescendo, but let's use this. Let's go there. Let's understand how this is a beautiful thing and a useful thing, not something that needs to be contained. Yeah. So it can clear so you can clear all that energetic space for mm-hmm. the creative flow, for the the life of intuition really. You know, when yeah. when you bring this up, um it's been such a part of my my work in ways that I'm just now realizing even just talking to you. Whenever we would do retreat, I've reimagined the Osho dynamic meditation. I don't know if you've ever done it, but it's like, it's wild and crazy, right? It's it's all about this like breath work that gets the somatic body involved. And then there's this 10 minute period of time where everybody quote unquote goes crazy and gets to yell and scream and they're blindfolded and mm. all of it. It's it's amazing. So I do it on retreats and I've reimagined it so it it has a little bit more nervous system regulation. It goes in with intention. The music's different, but the principles are still from Osho and the way he taught it. And most of the retreats are like 95% women getting to watch the extreme emotion that erupts in that 10 minute period of time as a space holder who is not blindfolded, but watching everybody else. Mm -hmm. It is a magical, beautiful thing. You're just like, oof, there is a lot of power in this room. And I do think it's so repressed. And and for me, this last retreat that I taught, it's exactly what you just said. I, I had this older woman come up to me and she says, you know, I'm realizing like, I can't even scream. Like, I can't do it. I can't make that sound. I, I keep trying and I, I can't. And it, for her, it was such a light bulb moment where she was like, I have never taken up space. I can't even... Even when given the opportunity, blindfolded, where no one will see me and no one will really hear me, I can't even do it. And that was like a, oof, like this, she's 65, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just been like repressed in there. And if you if you don't allow that movement, then you can't really allow any other emotion to bridge up either. It's a numbing of, of everything. So just to say your work is so important because I'm just oh, witnessing this. Yes. From- yeah. No, and I relate to that so intensely because, you know, Taryn Toomey, who created the class, is a dear friend. And I've done the class a few times. And I think that she is like sometimes offended and hurt that it is not my – that I don't do it. I, I can't work out in my my house, for one. But second, it's exactly that. It's like I am working on it. And we've talked about this. <laughs> but yeah. I am – and I've done it – I've had the luxury of sort of like doing it in a more like intimate setting with her and people I know really well. 
who know this about me, but like in a class, I can't do it. I can't bring myself to catharsis. I have too much shame still about letting that come up mm. and then letting it be seen. And where it's not a performance, where it's real. Yeah, I hear that. Where it's real. Yeah. And I find myself almost like, you know, not shocked, but just in this like deep – and maybe I need to like just make myself do it more. But And when I did, I write about in the book doing MDMA in the sort of MAPS-like protocol therapeutically with 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 someone and a lot of stuff coming up that I was completely unprepared for. I did it to understand it so I could talk about it on TV. I didn't do it thinking, oh, I'm going to go and like access old stuff. You're like, no, no, no. This is this is a critical lens. This is me taking a- This is a critical <laughs> clinical lens. Yeah. And then, of course, that was not my experience. And I was having the very intense somatic experience yeah. where- I was doing it in a pattern. My legs would shake. My hips would roll really fast. My shoulders would roll. And then I would arch, 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 arch like a fish again. And I just did that repeatedly. And it was kind of a fascinating experience. It was like a great unspooling. And I was just- Like a tantrum, really. Yeah. And I was like watching myself do it and just letting it happen and letting it happen. And then at a certain point, the therapist was like, all right. He was like stretching me and my husband was present too and like helping me try and like get it out of my body. And he was like, I need you to make sound. And I couldn't. And like the sound that I managed to make was like not from my voice box. It was like a mewling. It was this like – it sounded like a newborn. It was so – weird Fleur. It was such a weird disembodied sound. And that was all I could do. We did it again. Same thing started happening. I managed to make more sound and the movement stopped. Mm. But the first time I did it, I had to actually be sedated because I stayed up all night. I couldn't stop moving. Wow. But yeah, that's how deep. It can go so, so deep in us. Which another element to saying – great to do it in an assisted way because I so believe in these therapeutic approaches, but I also have witnessed enough people moving through their deep, 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 deep stuff, all this, all this emotion that we talk about, all this repression to know that that is a, that's a box when you unlock it, it's got a lot to be held and assisted. Absolutely. Absolutely. It cannot be, it cannot be under stated. Yes. For it to have not only value, but to it also to not be traumatizing or to create stories, you know. And yes, this was someone like- Because you're rewiring yes. and you want to make sure you're rewiring yes. in the direction where you want to be rewiring. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But that's brilliant, that experience and just to witness it in your own body. And now you have a language around it. Yes. A thousand percent. Incredible. Incredible. I would say actually one of the first places that I started recognizing that link between the intuition and the movement and the emotions and then found the class right around that same time. It's it's interesting that you bring it up because I think it's such an embodiment practice. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating that you guys are friends because you're doing it from different lenses. And I think everybody needs a 
sometimes a different um, access point, you know, like yeah. I'm also deeply intellectual and I, that's my safe space is like, if I can intellectualize it, if I can reason it out, then I am happy. And for me, that, that embodiment practice has been where I've seen the most growth, but it has not been the easy, the easy part. Yeah. I think we need all of it. Yeah. And so, yeah, Taryn and I have been talking too about like, can she translate my book into mm, yes. movement? And because what's so interesting, I think about women and just thinking about the, you know, briefly touching on psychedelics and like watching that culture evolve and emerge. And obviously there are a lot of women who are involved in it, but I, I feel personally that I don't need any more, I don't need to be out of my body any, I already feel so expanded Yes. And I don't need any proof of source or sort of my own intuition. I need to be put yeah. in my body. I need to experience my body. And so, but it's, in, I, people do need different medicine, but I don't think it's, it's any, that there's, makes a lot of sense to me that men tend to be, seem to be far more attracted to sort of ayahuasca and ego obliteration and like actually being exposed to the fact that, yes, guys, there's so much more than this material realm. I feel like not to generalize, but that that is something that women, mm -hmm. we get. Yeah. No shit. Absolutely. Welcome to the yeah. party. I have this discussion all the time with some of the highly sensitives that come into my work, including I have a wonderful woman who works with me. And we had this discussion. I was like, listen, if you never expand ever again, you would be doing yourself a favor. I need you grounded. I need you in your body yes. because the, you are so out. That is not your job. Your job is not to yeah. learn how to get out there. You've mastered that. Let me tell you, you only have access to it. However, if you're anchored, like otherwise it's completely yeah. pointless to be all the way out there because it won't, it won't be a healthy function for you. So I think you're, you're absolutely right. It's, it's like, what's your medicine? Where are you coming at it from? But I, but yeah. I still think there is an intellectual angle here that can help somebody get to the first layer. Yeah. You know, and then they can figure out the embodiment stuff. And I think you think about some of these blocks. It's interesting. I write about this incredible Carol Gilligan, who's sort of at the end of her career, she's she's quite old now, but she wrote this book in a different voice, which is you talk to a lot of therapists and they'll say it's a formative text about how women, how girls develop their sense of self and lose their voice in the process. And this idea that men sort of want to be in the world and girls want to be of service to the world. And the split sort of that happens in the moral framework of boys and girls. And she has this great line where she's talking about boys and girls. And she's like, at some point in our sort of acculturation process, the word don't is inserted into vocabularies. And for boys, it's I don't care. And for girls, it's I don't know. And you think about what's happening in psychedelics. And you think about men needing to learn that they are part of something that's much bigger than them. And that they do care, that they are essentially these eternal expanded beings. Meanwhile, women, it's a reminder that, yes, we know. This is all we, we know. And it's being damned in our bodies and in this sort of experience. And so for us, the clearing is like taking all of that knowing and sharing it with the world. Oof, powerful. It's true. 
I love that. Thank you so much for this conversation. It's been really wonderful. And I know it's going to be super helpful. It's like another lens to look at how do we get out of our own way and, and what that internal deeper truth is, that deeper knowing. Yeah. And that voice, that voice, we know that voice different than the other voices. We know our voice. Exactly. Yeah. And a digging for it. And it's a, it's a lifetime journey, obviously, because we've been very, very, very internally programmed, but we can do it. I think everybody can. Everybody can do it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Elise. Thanks for being here. Thank this was you. such a pleasure. And pleasure I, is all mine. Yeah. I hope our paths cross in, in real life at some point. Yeah. I'm sure they will. Yeah. Yeah. We got quite a few mutual friends, I think, like we were yeah. talking about before. So perfect. Thanks again. Hope you have all a wonderful right. rest of your Thanks, day. Thanks, Blur. Cheers. Bye. You too. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode with Elise. Wow is all I can say. It's just food for thought. If you would like to continue this discussion with a friend, I would really advise that. I think taking a look at what emotions you might feel very uncomfortable feeling is best done in community. You know, Elise and I talk about it, about calling each other out in the kindest, most gentlest of ways to say, all right, do you feel this emotion? Are you, as like a preliminary starting point, are you willing to admit and to accept that maybe from time to time you feel anger? Maybe from time to time you feel lust. Maybe from time to time you feel greed. Maybe from time to time you feel like a sloth and you want to feel like a sloth. Like where do you feel these things that you might not even be admitting to self yet? And in conversation with compassion, we can help ourselves feel more clearly so that we can know what the driving force is underneath it so that we can hear our own intuitive voice. So if you are committed to doing that kind of work in your life, which is really the entry point of intuition, send this to a friend, send this to a family member, and then see if you can ask this of each other, create the space to have the conversation. Oof, what growth. I'm definitely going to be doing this. I have been doing this. It has been transformative already. And like I said in the beginning of our episode today, was even a really good beach conversation. Uh, although I do think the the guys next to us in the beach cabana next to us were like, dude, that is such a deep conversation for the beach. Like they were, they were talking about something completely different. And here we are like deep into religious doctrine, feminine identity, what it means to be policed by the patriarchy. <laughs> uh, bless this life that we are living and the interests that speak to each of us very uniquely. But if this is of interest to you, then by God, go share this with someone. Go have that discussion because it's going to light up your life. I know it will. It's going to open up more room for emotion, which means more room for the intuition, which means more room for you. So thank you for listening. Leave a review. Let me know what you think about this episode. And I will see you here next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. 
But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.